this is a very exciting uh, moment in uh, Jeff's career and uh, of course we've known Jeff as a fantastic guitarist, singer-songwriter for many, many, many years and I've been a huge fan, I guess you all have too, but um, suddenly he's come out with his book and I, I know there's the word suddenly probably doesn't mean a lot to Jeff because he's probably been stewing over this for years. Angry Anderson song. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but uh, I guess the, um, the first, what we're going to do by the way is I'm going to ask Jeff a few questions, Jeff's going to talk a bit of, about and answer some of the questions. Then we're going to throw the uh, questions to you, see if you want to ask Jeff anything in specific. And he might even play something too for you as well in relation to... We have a guitar here as a security blankie. Yes. <laughs> we, uh, we decided the uh, guitar player needs to have a guitar handy, let's face it. So ladies and gentlemen, and Jeff Lang. Hello. That's Nick Charles, by the way, my <laughs> long-time friend. And at the, uh, the official Port Ferry launch of Some Memories Never Die. So, Jeff, I'm going to ask you this straight up. Um, why and how, how did this book come about? Well, um, my manager, um, lovely man named Jordan Verzar, kind of prompted it. He, he was pestering me every once in a while about, you write well, you should do a book or something. Maybe he's saying maybe you should do a, just a book of song lyrics on a print-per-order basis. I was like, ah... Oh, yeah, but people can find lyrics online. I don't know if that would be a thing that anyone would be interested in. Maybe I should choose a bunch of songs and then re-record those songs and then you've got something. And then I just sort of... What, what the, where it changed was I, was I was on a trip overseas last year, start of last year, to Canada, and just before the trip, like maybe a couple of weeks before, I'd been talking with a friend of mine who's a um, musician named Garnet Rogers and he's... His older brother was Stan Rogers, who's like a legend of the Canadian folk scene and um, died quite a while ago now. But um, Garnet's still on the scene and he, he had written this book um, called Night Drive um, and it's about him and his brother in the early days of the Canadian folk scene, which was very, I mean, early 60s in Canada, there was no folk network of gigs. They were just driving out through the snow and finding somewhere and just going through all these, you know, kind of problems with setting up a run of gigs. And what happened through this book, it, it struck me in a, in a couple of ways. Firstly, that it just was like when you're in a joke session and, you know, if someone walks up to you just cold and goes, hey, Nick, tell me a funny joke. You're like, uh, joke? Uh. <laughs> but if you're in a joke session with friends, then they start flowing and it seems like you can suddenly remember hundreds of jokes. And it's kind of like that with anecdotes. You know, s someone asks you in an interview, oh, you must have had lots of funny stuff happen through the years. And you say, hey, I remember laughing a fair bit. And then they say, what's a funny story? And you go, oh, I don't know. Uh, uh, I just drive around. You know, and it, it feels like there's nothing there. But reading his book, it was like, because I know him as well, I could really hear his voice. It's very well written. And it's very long. It's a long book, like 780 pages. <laughs> so um, as it was going along, I'd, I'd be sort of almost in a session with him, you know, going, oh, well, that reminds me of, oh, that reminds me of. And I just started jotting him down on my phone as I was reading it. Every time something that Garnet said tapped me on, you know, on the side of my brain and went, that reminds me of that story, I'd just make a one-line note. And then I read this thing and by the end of it, I'd made loads of notes. Yes. And then I went overseas and... You know, I was just bored, staying up on a long flight, can't sleep. So I just sat there with my phone, just with my thumbs, just typing stuff out based on these jotted down little notes. And by the end of that couple of weeks of touring in, in Canada, 
I had a lot of stuff written down in a raw form and then it was kind of like, hey, Jordan, that book idea. It's kind of grown from... It's either like a, an album with the most self-indulgent liner notes ever <laughs> or uh, <laughs> book-length liner notes or it's a, you know, it, it's a book with like a double album worth of download stuff. But it's chapters linked to songs, but they're not literally linked yes. in a lot of cases. Sometimes they are, but I don't do a lot of autobiographical songwriting, so sometimes it might be just a link like this song is set in Tasmania and I've got a bunch of you know, amusing tales from touring in Tassie, so I'll yeah. do that as a chapter to go with that. So, so once yeah. you started, basically, it started to pour out, yeah? Yeah, and it sort of took on a form, um, this kind of standalone vignettes form. Instead of kind of making everyone you know, who picks it up have to sit through in order through my you know, childhood, etc., etc., it's just, you know, the, each thing is just kind of its own standalone chapter and yeah. it, it kind of has, each one has its own theme but tied together by, you know, the musician's life, a glimpse into the view of it that I've had. Yes. Mm. There's so many little uh, moments in your career that sort of live off in these tangents of thought in the book, which I really love. Um, if I might just... Um mention one thing here. One, one of your uh, themes in the book that I really liked earlier on was the sort of the isolation of touring. Does that make sense to you from it what read? It can be like that, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and I was thinking, you know, I was thinking Wake and Fright sometimes. Some of those, <laughs> remember Wake and Fright, everybody? Okay. You know... There are moments like that. That's yeah. right. You know, your, your early tours of the Australian uh, outback, etc. Pretty amazing reading. So... Um, <laughs> There's probably even more there than what you've written, no doubt. Yeah, Yeah, I wait to hear back from some of my fellow, you know, <laughs> travellers and they'll go, why didn't you include this? And then there might be a volume two. Yeah, you yeah. know, <laughs> once, you, once you kind of get the feedback of, how could you leave out this one? Yeah. But it was all just what sort of came to me. Yeah. I didn't really check in much with people who were there to sort of go, is there anything else I'm forgetting? Because I just wanted it to feel, it's not journalism. No. You know, it's factual, but it's not... I wasn't really aiming for it to be like, well, you know, this this is absolute everything that it could be. It's just my perspective on it. And, you know, memories are funny. They kind of... You remember things a certain way and it's very clear to you, but someone else who was there might remember it of quite a different way or, you know. Yeah. And so, you know, if I leave their voices out, then no one has to hear what a prick I've been. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, there's... Uh, in, so, in some respects, it looks not, it's not a biography, obviously, but in some respects, this, this kind of writing is almost um, gets into the personality of the person deeper than a regular biography. Uh, you know, we, we mentioned uh, Chronicles at one point. Oh, yeah, big and, fan of that. And, and in a sense, you know, Chronicles reveals Dylan in, in, in great detail without saying, I was born, blah, blah, I went to school here, I went to school He's there. And yeah. your writing is very much like that. Well, I, yeah, that, that I'm a fan of that book and I... I did. I wasn't really thinking of that so much no. when I was writing it, but the the connection is 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 definitely a valid one. That I felt like if I'm feeling compelled to write about whatever the particular thing is at the time, then it ha stands a chance of being readable. Mm. Whereas if I just force myself to go through talking about things that I find boring to write about, then I'm sort of climbing a bigger hill. So I took the easy way out and left yeah. out the things I couldn't be bothered with, and just kind of concentrated on things that I was interested in. And that's how it kind of took a form because I'd be starting off just like, oh, that story, that was pretty funny. You know, it might be like one of those wake and fright type of ones. Yeah. But as I would be writing it, 
a sort of a theme would emerge. It wouldn't just literally be just about surviving that particular yeah. onslaught of whatever it is. It might not be me thinking about, oh, how, you know, like it can be isolating touring, especially on your own. Mm. And, but even, even with a band, there's usually someone who's kind of calling the shots and paying people. Mm. And so there's a, an element of separatism that happens with that. Yeah. It's not like anyone's interested, me included, in reading about, you know, some musician moping. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but at the same time, yeah, that, might, that might be a theme that just kind of emerged through telling yes. a story, is that that would sort of... And other stories would kind of come to mind as I was writing it. It's like, oh, that reminds me of this. Yeah. You know, there's a chapter in there about violence and yes. blokes. And some of the stories, they just naturally flowed together in a way that started giving a picture of a take on that from what I've experienced of some of that, watching the way people carried on at gigs and standing up there and going, whoa, look at that. They just <laughs> threw a billiard ball across the room at someone and went through a window. Okay. Well, you know, <laughs> and you just... Keep playing and wish there was chicken wire, you know. <laughs> yes. Well, I, my, my perception is you're amazingly resilient, actually, uh, coming from some of these tours that you've done. But uh, one, one sort of thought that popped in my mind and which is probably relevant to you is that um, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, yeah? Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I mean, in a way, there's a sort of protection that happens. Um, it's, part of the, it's part of the sort of... Um, subtle downside of touring is that people think that you see a lot of places and you do but you are kind of culturally skimming when you're on tour I liken it to sort of being like you know someone skimming a stone across a river and you just kind of just keep moving yeah. and m disappear off into the reeds you know and so you get a, a feeling of people in a place and you get a bit of an experience of where you are but you're not you're not immersing you know immersing yourself like to give an example of the of how that can be that way is I was in New York City for three months in 1997 and at the end of three months I felt like a local because I hadn't been anywhere for at least you know 12 years before then for a longer than a week mm. at the most mm. that was if I had a week off somewhere so being somewhere for three months was like wow I felt like I'd lived there for a decade um, so touring is kind of like that and back to the point about you know what doesn't kill you makes you stronger there's also an element of that the fact that you're kind of skimming through that kind of protects you a little bit from that stuff because some guys having a violent dust up in the room you know really you know boneheaded stuff some of mm, it yeah. and and ugly yeah. but they're not like they might be sort of a bit begrudging of this blow-in who's playing up there and people are looking at them but their beef is with each other and if you don't if you don't sort of poke the bear from <laughs> on stage then you just kind of disappear and leave them to whatever it is that yes. their problem was with each other so you know um, I mean, a lot of that stuff was in early days too. I was playing in, you know, cover bands and stuff. So mm -hmm. I'd just be sort of, you know, cowering, <laughs> cowering at the back <laughs> of the stage. With the, the drummer was the singer, so he's at the front of the stage. So I had like a drum kit I could hide behind. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you know, there's there's an element of, of of protection that happens just because you're not actually part of whatever social scene is going on that you that you're moving through. Um, you mentioned uh, your early days playing in, a co in cover bands and so on, you know, and that's not an uncommon story in itself, but uh, you certainly kicked on from there, that's for sure. But I just... Um, we mentioned earlier on there was a particular paragraph, a beautifully written paragraph. You write it pretty early on in the book. I thought there was one in there. Yeah. No, there's many in there. <laughs> there are many in there. Now, I, d I did love this, and um, it's, it's really about how you... Well, 
you, you might you can tell me what this real this this means in depth, but you, I, I'm going to try and read this. I, I'm very unused to reading from a book in public, but I think it's a lovely piece of writing from Jeff's book, and it talks about how he was, uh, you know, hooked into music, you know, and sort of it just grabbed him. And this is a uh, sort of I guess late in middle of high school, late in high school, and uh, he was sort of not fitting in particularly into the uh, football sort of scene, etc. and uh, and music took him. You know, he says, um, My ear had been pricked up by a far-off signal. My head had been turned and I, in turn, had been captivated. The recordings I'd been, di- I'd been discovering had given me a glimpse through a crack in the pavement. A tiny sliver of a gap I could escape through amongst the bland, grey possibilities laid out for me. The more I listened, the further I leaned into that gap and the more I could see of a secret place, an entire world into itself. The better I paid attention to what I was listening to, the further I allowed myself to drift in this river of sounds and the more I could hear other signals in the distance like faint crackling of a radio station coming into range. That's great. I've been listening for whatever is playing on that station ever since. My hands always reaching for the dial to tune in and hear a new song. Despite all the self-doubt and self-loathing swirling around in my head, I was unwilling to turn away from the dial that I'd somehow, something in me which would not give up on hearing the next incoming sound is something I'm incredibly grateful for. That's a fantastic paragraph and I, you know, um, and that's an example of what you can find in this book. You would like to elaborate a bit more on that? Well, I guess to me it's it's thinking about the idea of talent um, and gifts and things. I don't know if I really believe in talent. I think that if there's anything that's a gift, it's, it's I mean, everyone has things that they get gripped by and they're obsessed with and if you can identify that, then that's a gift. And if you've got a personality that is, is really um, stubborn about pursuing that, yeah. then that's sort of like a personality trait that you're kind of born with, and that's, yeah. that's a gift. Yeah. Doing it, that's just time. Yeah. And if you've got the inclination, then you can do it. But not everyone has the inclination to do something as silly for a living as making up stories and singing them. Yeah. You know? But if you're obsessed with that, then that's the personality that you've got, and that's you know, a bit obsessive. I've got a bit of an obsessive personality with that. And when, to me, music and, and records, as well as playing live, I love playing live, but I love records too. I think it's a form, of, it's, it's the closest thing to magic that I've encountered. You know, time travel. I can sit in a room listening to Skip James, albeit full of crackles and everything, but I'm in, in a room in Grafton, Wisconsin in 1931, listening yeah. to him play piano and sing. Mm. Holy crap, man. Yeah. How the hell can I do that? To me, that's kind of magical. Yeah. I know it's technological and everything, it's, and it's silly to s- talk about it like it's magic. It's not literally magic, but it's magical to me. There's a time and capsule. Right? Yeah, and, and when you're, you know, you're in that age, like, oh, oh, you know, it's not like a poor me scenario. Yeah. I was just didn't fit in yeah. in the year at the high school. My older sister was a year earlier, and it was a bit more arty, and kids were into books and stuff. Mm. The year I was in, it seemed to be just wall-to-wall sport, and there's nothing wrong with that, but I just wasn't. Yep. compelled by that yep. and so I found something else mm. and so that's that's what I'm grateful for about about that is that whatever personality I'm stuck with it did have that going for it that it that I would not let up on this and it's you know I, I still you know feel very captivated by if I hear something great musically that that feels moving and powerful to me it's just everything it it very powerful to me still and and really grips me and it can be anything any style 
any type of performance, if it's got that thing, then it, I'm, I'm there. Well, we're grateful you've got that. <laughs> but loads of music has that for me. Yeah. You know, that's the thing. I'm a fan. I'm off stage and I'm a music fan. Yeah. Would we um, maybe throw the questions sure. to you? Sure. Yeah, see if anyone's got something they want to yeah. ask, yeah. Yes. I open tuning. So yeah, I, I, in case you didn't hear that at the back, it's about whether I spent a lot of time in standard guitar tuning and then went to open tuning. Initially, my first instrument was an older sister's nylon string acoustic guitar, and she discarded it. And it actually had a couple of broken off the, the plastic buttons that you would tune with were broken off. And so I didn't really think about pliers or something to I just listened to it and went well those two sound okay together that are broken so I'll just move these around and it was a little bit ignorant and just innocent you know and so I ended up it's kind of like an open C tuning I worked out later then I saved up money and got an electric guitar and I would keep the acoustic in the room and I'd tune to that and I knew it wasn't proper you know like I kind of knew it was I thought of it as illegitimate you know, I was cheating um, or I was doing something, I thought I was doing something dumb playing in an open tuning. It's like, this is kind of not real. This is me faking it. And then at a certain point, I couldn't, so I was just fiddling around. I was trying to play things that other people had done. So I might be playing like, you know, a cold chisel riff like Bow River or something. And I'd be, oh, well, I got the right notes, but it doesn't sound right. It's like, that's probably because of this tuning. So then I put in a bit of time into standard tuning just to sort of go, what is going on that people are doing? Oh, that makes sense. He's just playing this open position thing. Ah. And then went, you know, it almost is like to me standard tuning. And apologies, this is very nerdy for anyone who doesn't play guitar. But that standard tuning to me is almost, I view it like an open tuning in a way. Not that I'm always looking to play open strings, but it's all just about the relationship between different intervals, one string to the next, and how you work that. And so sort of became one thing but I spent yeah a bit of time in in an open tuning and then spent a bit more time playing in standard tuning and that led into playing in cover bands and stuff but as soon as I was starting to write my own songs I was gravitating back towards twisting the pegs around and yeah a lot of the time it's just being pragmatic going well I like the sound of that you know little four note riff but I want to change chords and that's a bit of a stretch so I'll just change the tuning that makes it easier cool you know that's like a lot of my process with open tuning is just, you know, some of them are standard, you know, open E or G or things that people use and other ones might have a couple of notes different and it's usually happened just because I want to do something, hear a certain voicing of a chord and I don't want to work too hard. <laughs> okay, very good. Um, one of the other things that you uh, seem to be really engrossed with right from the beginning, Jeff, was this, so you talk about the search for sound, tone. Mm. That's a real big thing for you, isn't it? Yeah, like that's part of the the love for records that I have. Like, I think overall it's not, it wasn't just, I mean, guitar was kind of the thing that I felt a physical affinity with and also it's a big part of the sound of the records I was listening to. You know, so I was, I was hearing growing up Bob Dylan and Ry Cooter and Leo Kotke and I was discovering, you know, bands like Cold Chisel, Led Zeppelin, ACDC and all stuff like that. And guitar is just very front and, you know, front and centre in a lot of that music. So it's natural that I would gravitate towards the sound of guitar based on what I was listening to, but also it made sense to me for some reason. Um, and so, but, but I think I fell in love with sound primarily. 
just that the sound of the guitar was big in the sound of the records. But I still, I don't have to hear guitar on a record that I love. I can go and watch the next play for hours and it's piano, bass and drums. Yeah. I yeah. don't need a damn guitar. It's just got to be compelling music. You talk about the totality of sound at one stage. Mm. Yeah, how the whole thing grips you. I think people who listen to music, and live might be different because you're watching people mm. and you can see where things are coming from. But when you hear a record, I think... There's a purity to the way a layman listens to a recording. They just hear a sound and are gripped by it. Mm. And, you know, they're not like a musician sitting there analytically going, oh, yeah, I hear the bass line against this. And it's just one thing. Yeah. And I think that's a kind of a better way to listen to music as one thing. That's good. Yeah. Another sure, question. Yeah. Well, I mean, for starters, I'll say I don't mind which one comes first as long as I get something, <laughs> you know, like way, songwriting can be very frustrating because it feels like there's a lot of waiting around. I could write a song a day easily, but not many of them would be worth hearing because there's a certain element that you can't force. Um, but you can brush up on your, your technique and your craft and you can also tune in the station that, you know, so I think if you're working on songwriting, even if it's something you don't think is very good, you're still kind of tuning in the station and getting yourself, you know, your brain's a muscle and you're kind of getting it ready to receive something decent even when it comes. My best strike rate has been with lyrics first. That's been my best strike rate. I find it very frustrating having, a, you know, a collection of riffs because it just feels like, well, to force something onto that will just be making it be kind of about the guitar riff and shoehorning a song into it. And it just never seems to work very easily for me. I get very frustrated listening back to things where that's happened. But occasionally it's worked. Like a song of mine called Running by the Rock was one where I had a musical idea that it was sitting around unused for quite a while. Just a feel, really. It wasn't anything to do... It wasn't a song. It was just a feel and a riff, a rolling kind of West African-sounding thing. And then I wrote a set of words, and I wasn't sure whether they worked or not. And then I actually just did it like a... I was, in a period where I hadn't written anything for a while and so I was like, well, I'll see if I can do a bit of a dating service between these lyrics and riffs and see if anyone gets along. And I just put these two together and went, ah, oh. I was listening on the phone and look at those lyrics and it's like, ah, oh, with that going, that's starting to sing to me. I mean, that's kind of what I'm looking for with a set of lyrics is if I look at it, I'm very happy if I've got a set of words and I look at it and I can hear it. If it either it's a metre or hopefully a melody as well, that would be nice. But even a metre can help because you get a bit of a rhythm. And then you can start working out where it sits for you. But, it, yeah, I mean, a melody first is good too. You'll That's find by reading this book, actually, and, a lot, and the song lyrics, most of them do read as poetry, I find. A lot okay, of them okay, read. Well, well, I think they do anyway. Are they yeah. <laughs> and um, and that's, that's great, you know, and, and that's why I suspect it sort of backs up what you've just said, actually. I, I, I read some of these things without listening to them. I thought that's a great piece of poetry. That oh, thanks, that. mate. Um, I mean, the, the, <laughs> I mean, yeah. I wouldn't be sure how how that would work. I mean, do you read poetry, a, by the way? I haven't I read a great deal. Yeah. I've, I've I've been you certainly write it. That's for sure. Well, I'm into songwriters who write very poetically. Yes, Richard yes. Thompson, yes. Ricky Lee Jones, Joni Mitchell. Mm. You know, um, Dylan, of course. Yes. Um, Leonard Cohen. These mm. people write very literate. Poetic lyric. Don Walker, I think, is yeah. very poetic mm -hmm. lyricist. Mm -hmm. Very Australian type of poetics with, with the Don. 
um, Mick Thomas, you know, and th these people write very poetic type of lyrics and, and you can you can really climb into them. So if that comes across that way, I'll, I'll, I'll take that. Well, um, that's sort of one aspect of, the, of this. I just, uh, there's many, many, many interesting sort of facets of this book and um, and I just thought I'd draw your attention to one of the other things that you talk about, this built-in fail mechanism you talked about. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, would you like to elaborate a bit on that for me? Well, it's just, I mean, it, I was careful not to have it be, again, like a bit of a mope because no, it's, not, it's, it's not meant to be like that. I find it kind of funny, but there's just a certain thing you think about, you know, I don't know, maybe it's not true of everyone, but a lot of us, if you found that you have a thing where you almost chastise yourself for being careerist <laughs> in any way, it's like if, if you're doing a, a music industry showcase, then it's like, I like to play. Why would I care if there's industry people checking me out? Mm. I like to play, so fuck it, just play. Mm. But you feel almost, I feel almost resentful at myself for being able to do it well if I do, because it's like, well, you're just trying to, you know, you're doing it from an impetus that's not the pure musical <laughs> impetus of trying to put across a song yeah. and take someone somewhere. You're trying to sell yourself and wow them. And I just find like an al allergic reaction to that in myself yeah. that I don't appreciate. I wish that I was better at that because it might make me an even bigger jerk, but <laughs> it might have helped <laughs> if you can just go, all right, here it is, bamo, come get it. But I don't actually know what the, the bamo thing that I have up my sleeve is. I figure that you just kind of, Whatever I feel like playing is usually the best way to go, but in those sort of things, I often feel like I don't feel like playing anything. I feel like running away. Yeah. So it, it, it's, that's part of... I've got some stories that illustrate it that I just found were amusing, just even at the time, where you're going, see, look at you. You can't do it, can you? <laughs> you can't, <laughs> you can't take advantage <laughs> of this situation and, and work this, like networking. I you just can't do it. <laughs> I did like that sort of aspect of uh, some of the sections I was reading. There was this voice talking to you saying certain things to you that were almost contrary to performance sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you've got to actually yeah, tell your inner critic to piss off a lot of the time. <laughs> but it's hard to do when you know that the actual reason that you're doing this gig is to try and wow some, you know, there might be like a Rolling Stone rider there or something. And <laughs> you're concentrating entirely in your mind on that one person and it's just stupid. Yes. You, you know in yourself that that's not. But in trying to fight the urge to play to that one person, you're still reacting to that. <laughs> And so, yeah, it just goes on a spiral and I just end up going, you're an idiot, you suck, go away. <laughs> and that's not good for the career, it, it, it turns out. <laughs> it actually leads to this other thing, you know. It, it, it's you've got a chapter called Shonks and Plonkers, which is really quite amusing, actually. You meet a few. Dodgy people in the industry. But um, at one point in time, you, you actually suggest, well, maybe you say, what else might I have done if it hadn't been for music? Have you got any ideas about that? Jockey, maybe. A jockey. Okay. <laughs> Why did I think you were going to say that? Okay. I was into horse racing as a youngster. I was. I was really oh. into, into the horse this racing. This the uh, Mickey Rooney show? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all, all the era of Roy Higgins and Harry White and these people. And then all the horses I liked retired and then that was like my, my mates had gone. I was not into it anymore. Mm. <laughs> as soon as Kingston Town and Dulcify all retired, I was out. Old school. Yeah. Could we have another question from the audience? Uh, how about you, sir?
Well, my parents were the driver of encouraging us kids to have a go. So my elder sister played a bit of guitar for a while and then sort of put it aside. She wasn't that interested. My younger sister tried a few things, piano, flute, um, and she's a singer. She remains a very good singer. Um, my parents just kind of thought, well, this is something that you should just encourage your kids to do, and if they want to do it, they'll do it. They, don't, they had no inkling that it would be a job. I mean, they were quite baffled by the idea that someone in our family was a musician. They, you know, like most people, they wouldn't really know what it even means. You just like, okay, so you play music, but what are you going to do for a living, you know? It's like, fair comment, fair question. <laughs> um, so it wasn't something that was in school. It was just a private thing. And I was lucky. I, fa I, had, I was playing clarinet and I had a teacher named Tony Hughes who, unfortunately, he, he died a couple of years ago and I actually wanted to get in touch with him since I'd written the book to thank him for some of the early path that I had because he encouraged improvisation and, you know, things that it wasn't part of the general curriculum of this, you know, it was Deakin University. He did private lessons there, but it would usually be like going through the book and learning things in order and doing, you know, grades. And he very quickly on, well, he just, you know, had an inkling that, that that probably wasn't the best thing for me, so he encouraged improvisation. He also encouraged me to meddle around with tape recorders in the place, which has also become a lifelong sort of obsession, recording people and producing records, engineering and stuff. So he encouraged stuff early on that was part of that. So teaching is very important, but I didn't personally have anything in school that was doing it. And I do think it's a very important thing, have, having support for the arts, because not everyone has the same path into this stuff. I was lucky, you know, I found something that I was really into, but it wouldn't necessarily, it wasn't automatic that it would have been that way. Um, so, you know, if someone else is out there and their parents don't encourage them to try playing music, well, they could do with that encouragement at school. And it, again, if it's not for them, that's okay, but it's good to try, it's good to get a, a look into all these things to encourage creativity. Um, so, I, yeah, it, it wasn't a part of my thing, but it is in, an important thing to, to have available, I think. Hmm. Maybe one more question. Yes. Oh, sorry, then I'll point it. Sorry, point, point. I'll get back to you. Sorry. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Everyone. Good answer. I, like I, I don't know. I mean, the funny thing about writing a book, I, I read a great, um, <laughs> a great book from uh, from Viv Albertine from The Slits, but the start of her first book, which is fantastic. She's written a couple of great books. Um, they're both autobiographical. And she said at the start of the first one, anyone who writes a book is either needing cash or a wanker. So let's get <laughs> in. Yeah, and, and so <laughs> she doesn't tell you which one she is, but I suspect it's the needing money. But yeah, you just, I mean, you it's not like I think, oh, I've written a book about my various travails because I think I've had such an, an interesting life, you know? It's like, well, everyone's got an interesting life in some way. So big deal, man. Why, why should I read about yours? It's, just, it's not really about whether my life's especially interesting. It's whether you can tell a story about it and make yeah. that interesting. So, I mean, I deal in that sort of stuff with songwriting, you know, and this is a different facet to it because I'm now looking at things that are literally as true as I can get them, whereas to me in songwriting, it's got to feel like the truth, but it doesn't have to be factual. It's not a court deposition or something <laughs> with a song. It's, it's just something that you can make up completely if you want. You can talk from a character's point of view and have it be completely outrageously, you know, like Robin Hitchcock, where it's like science fiction, you know, 
all sorts of you know metamorphoses happening in his songs and it, and it's great it doesn't have to be literally true but when you're writing a memoir it's a different side of it so i found it interesting to write but because i'd sort of built in that thing of just keep keep it something that you're interested in writing about and then it might stand a chance but you know having a good editor helps too while you're on that subject uh, did, is there much that you found out about yourself while you're writing this book there was one, isn't it? well, <laughs> there were things, but some of the things I didn't end up using. Yes, because it just I, I realized there's some things that it's very hard to include um, stories to, because it means something to you. It doesn't necessarily mean it's going to cross yeah. over and be something that someone else yeah, is yeah. going to actually be interested in. Yeah. Um, there's an element of therapeutic, you know, quality to yeah, writing yeah. some of the stuff. Yeah. But ultimately, if it just if you read it back and at the end of the day you're sitting there with you know, in my case, my editor was a guy named Andrew Gregg in Tasmania, and he was great. He was great to work with, and he'd just be sort of suggesting things. You know, maybe lean into this. He'd underline something. You know, lean into that. That's interesting. Or yeah, maybe back away from that. But there were certain chapters where I'd spent a lot of time on them. Mm. But you read them back, and ultimately we go, you know what? This really is more therapy than something. This is something that only the people directly around this particular set of things could relate to and get something out of. And it was kind of valuable to me to write it, but it doesn't really mean much to someone else. So mm. just just nix it. You know, it's good to not be precious about it. I think um, at this point in time, uh, would be remiss of me not to ask you to play something on that guitar you've got sitting there. You want to hear something? Sure. Okay. Man plays guitar as well as writes books. <laughs> so That's something we know. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> There's a bear in there. That's Brod Smith's one for that. Someone said, play something we know he'd play. He'd start the play school theme. That's <laughs> right. Nasty. <laughs> it's brilliant. Everyone knows that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's see. I'll do this. I decide to bring this 12 string along just to make it unwieldy for myself. By the way, the book comes with a bookmark with uh, attached to downloads, etc. Very good, uh, interesting concept. It's a guide to why you shouldn't try and use a 12 string in there. How long does it take to tune up a 12 string, Nick? Uh, we'll never know. No one knows, Nick. That's right. <laughs> Burnside, he stood at the curb by the gate, bag and his coat by his side. And he thought to himself, useless brother, be late, as he scanned the dawn horizon for a light. As he scanned the dawn for a light. Now Burnside, he walked over to the driver's door and embraced his brother dear. 
where to, where to? Put your foot to the floor Anywhere that is warm and far from here Anywhere that's far from here Burnside is sat with a bottle in hand As the landscape had passed by his eye He said these last ten years They've been like dripping sand So slowly the time passes here inside So slowly time passes inside Tell me where have you been to my own brother dear That you could never visit on me Well I've ached so to come But not made journey one Without mother being so unwell you see Without mother, so will you see. What of my boy, my brother so dear? Have you seen him tucked up safe in bed? Well, I've not heard a word of him for five years. Nor seen not one of the hairs on his head Nor seen not one hair on his head What of my Janet, my brother so dear She kept herself just for me Well, your Janet left town Everywhere that she walked Was a grim and lonely reminder of thee A lonely reminder of thee
Burnside is sad as his own brother drove Till they spied a patch of ground clear He said pull over boy To the side of the road I'll see your eyes when I'm bending your ear See your eyes when I'm bending your ear Now Burnside his brother's ear with one hand he collared his coat he said you'd think all the talk it'd just stay out here and his left hand had reached out for his brother's throat his hand he'd reached out for his throat Burnside him slid into the driver's seat His brother on passenger side And he slumped and he swayed With every turn in the street No more did his brother blink an eye No more did he Thank you. So it's an example of something that's less autobiographical. It's just made up. That's a pretty uh, interesting example of, uh, you know, some many of your influences that right there, actually. Some of the chapters in the book talk about flashpoints in your musical career, one being Indian music, going yep, to India. absolutely, yeah, yeah. And there's obviously that uh, kind of, eight, that sort of, um, what sort of scales are you using and things like that and sort of sounds. Playing out of tune. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm not going to argue with that even as, as I joke about it. I don't mind outside yeah, stuff. You, you do say that, that's right. There's the idea of sort of, there's harmelodic sort of um, consonants and then there's dissonance and, and it's about, yeah, tension and release. Yeah. So the more you can exploit tension, the more you can deliver release. Is that what you found in indie music uh, appealing? What? Um, I don't know. I just something about the sound of it just appealed to me. It's yeah. really as simple as that. Something about the sound of it appealed. Um, there's a vocal quality, a mellifluous kind of quality, singing quality to how all the melody instruments work yeah. in Indian music, and that had a real appeal to me. Um, and I had, a, you know, some good doorways into it where yeah. there were collaborative things, like Raikuta did that record with mm. Vishwamoy and Bach. Mm. And that was a good way of sort of um, bringing your ear into it because, you know, I was familiar with Raikuta's Americana approach. Yeah. And then he's meeting with this Indian and creating this sort of thing that's separate from both of those. But it's not like Raikuta was trying to play like an Indian guy. No. Just with the Indian guy did that. Yeah. Raikuta did his thing. But yeah. it sort of, it's a good way of sort of ushering you into that world and, um, yeah, the more I discover about that stuff, the more I like it. So that's sort of a key, one of the key moments in the book is that, is that Indian thing. And then there's also, in that, in that sort of lyric you're writing there, there's, there's references to things like Pretty Polly and the bluegrass stories and things, yeah? Yeah, yeah, the old, the old folk songs. It's yeah. a, it, I mean, we're at a folk festival, so it seems apt, but um, it's like songwriting 101. 
Mm. Yeah, the same with the old the old blues songs. You know, you could go and see someone like John Hammond, you know, the, the solo acoustic guy, and you could learn a lot about songwriting just because of the material that he plays from mm. all these you know back porch poets. Mm. Um, there's something about songs that have survived for a long time. They're sturdy, and the storytelling aspect to them is, is powerful. Mm. And you know, I, you, you you can speak from the voice of an unpleasant character. Mm. Um, or someone who doesn't share your morality, yeah. but that's okay. It's about us, you know. You don't go to a film and yell at the screen. That's not true. I've seen Billy Bob Thornton, and he wasn't dead. Yes, you right. Know. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, it doesn't need to be literal in in songs. I like Anyone the way out you there who writes songs, actually, you know, yeah. you sort of covered both sides of the argument sometimes in the book, which I really love. <laughs> well, it's interesting, you know. You've answered the questions that some people are going to ask. <laughs> well, <laughs> just looking at things from different sides, it's not it's not like my take on what makes a compelling song should yes. be everyone's. No, it doesn't exactly. matter. People should like whatever the hell they want to. You know. <laughs> Another uh, sort of. Vi- Obviously, a very important character to you, and um, perhaps um, a pivotal moment in your career was was Chris Whitley. Yeah, working with Chris was great. I mean, discovering Chris's music was a real amazing thing because I w- walked in a little bit blind. You know, I hadn't I hadn't heard his stuff, but a friend of mine recommended seeing him, and I was living in Sydney, so I went and saw him at a, a gig in Sydney, and it was really breathtaking his gig for me because it was like he was. It's like looking down, you know, I was already on a road where there was elements of sort of, you know, the bluesy side of what I do and 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 twisting that and, you know, taking that out somewhere else. I was kind of doing that, but seeing Chris was like someone who'd walked another 10 years down that road and they're showing you, well, you could take it here or here's where I took it. It's not like, oh, well, you copy that, but it's like going, wow, look at how far out this guy's taken these raw materials. Was, I was sitting there trying to process it for half his gig going, wow, what is this exactly? It's got this, you know, connections to things that I hear of Skip James and, you know, Robert Johnson and things like that. Mm. But it's also, and it's got Dylan poeticism, mm. but it's also full of this otherness. Yeah. And, and I find that really compelling. Like John Fay is another one who mm. has that. It's like you can hear things in John Fay does that it's like Mississippi John Hurt type finger picking. But no matter what he's doing with that, it's always got this otherness seeped through it. And Chris had that. Yeah. And that was really interesting to me as, as someone who was, you know, fairly early into, you know, only a few years into playing my own songs at gigs and hearing someone who was completely driven to explore and express without apology that otherness to his work was, was really... Um, profound for you. Yeah, it? It, was, it, was, it was fascinating as a fan, for starters. And then just getting to know Chris and then... Recording with him was... Uh, a very short know. moment in, in time too, really, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I knew him for 12 years. but oh, you did? Huh? Yeah, yeah. I knew him for 12 years. That first time I saw him, he was at my gig the next night because someone at his gig had said, you should come and see this bloke. Oh, yeah. And so he was there, uh, like a graveyard shift in King's Cross, you know, two till five. <laughs> like at a place that I'm sure was um, run on the, powder. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> I'm pretty sure. Is this the Mansell room you're talking about? Yeah, it used to be the Mansell room. And it was <laughs> called Springfield's and you'd... See, like, five business guys come out of a single cubicle all seeming to have contracted the flu. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Then they'd leave and you'd continue to play to the bar staff. And then, yeah, in between sets, it was, like, you know, a handful of people there, one of whom was Chris. And we just kept in touch ever since then. Uh, I thought that yeah. the Chris Whitley uh, connection was almost a book within itself, actually. <laughs> yeah, I got into the telling of that story. It was, it was kind of, yeah, reliving science stuff. It's a little bit upsetting in a way because, you, you know... I. He's, he died, you know, after we made the album, not very long afterwards. And, you know, he was very sick, but 
he didn't look after himself and you're sort of thinking about that and it's just a real shame. But at the same time, people have got their own life to live and you can't chaperone everyone through everything. You just, you know, we all got our own problems. But yeah, Chris had his, Chris had his demons, but he was a sweetheart. He was a real lovely guy. And just, yeah, I don't know if I buy the idea of, oh, such and such is our genius. I think that certain people get touched by genius. Mm. You know, Dylan has been touched by genius, like McCartney mm. has been touched by genius. Yeah. It's not like everything they do is pure genius, yeah. but Chris was touched by genius. And um, so, you know, it's, it's good to be around that. Mm. Shall we have another question from sure. you guys? Yeah, Rob. Um, first of all, thank you. <laughs> no worries. It's a good flicking book, isn't it? It is a good flicking book, yeah. Yeah, there's a thing of just getting through. I was talking to Rob about this. I kind of did feel you through it more than before. I was actually pretty happy with the way you asked. I kind of had a notion there. Trying to make a good midway point between a legitimate book and a good dunny read. Unfortunately, if you've heard my voice now, you'll hear my squeaky voice in your head. Um, I'd like to think it would be Lawrence Olivia or something. James Mason. <laughs> James Mason, yeah. Imagine James.
So, how good are you? <laughs> Overrated. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I've, I've just been into the song side of things. I mean, I love to play and I love, you know, music. You don't have to necessarily understand words to get it, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, into, I'm into the words as well and it's good to play in the context of a song, you know, instead of just here's a bunch of guitar playing that's just about itself. One more question. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I Yeah, she is all those things. He's talking about her there. Yeah, because she is, she, is, she is a great songwriter and great musician and singer and everything. It's, it's very important. I mean, look, one, one of the things that you know, you're talking about earlier about that sort of the isolationism of, of touring, it can be like that. And, you know, there's, there's been sort of stories about, you know, mental health and things like that in, in the performing, you know, in the music industry. It can be tough. I know people who, you know, they just have a one-bedroom apartment that they rent and they're in it for a week or two and then they're out travelling on their own for three months. I mean, I feel very fortunate I've got something that's an anchor. Mm. How would I feel exactly at the end of, you know, uh, driving all day to a sparsely attended midweek make-weight gig and then going back to, you know, some cheap hotel room on the edge of nowhere if that was it? I mean... I probably would still be doing it. That's <laughs> the truth. It's not like I would have packed it in, but it makes it easier to cope with if you've got something that balances it. Um, not to mention good food and a cup of tea when you need it. Just yeah, it, it it is important. I mean, yeah, you wouldn't wouldn't have married her if she wasn't. Mm. That's excellent. Mm. By the way, that there's all sorts apart from the sort of the, the, the heavy stuff in the book. There's some very great moments of humour too. And you uh, have to laugh at it. I laughed at it. I did laugh at it. You have to find things to laugh at. I laughed out loud. And especially some of those uh, great Australian put-downs that you talk about. Oh, yeah, the nomplements chapter. The nomplements. Yeah. It's a made-up word of mine because, yeah, it's the thing where you get something that's put to you like in the tone like it's a compliment, but when you actually pay attention to the words, it's really kind of (laughs) not. That's right. I like what you're trying to do up there. That's the good one. It's like... That's thanks, a classic. Thanks, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I like what I'm trying to do too, but <laughs> right. I don't like what I'm actually doing that much either. What about, no. what about <laughs> that uh, comment about slide playing from a jazz guy? That was a good one. Oh, that was a good one, yeah, yeah. I love what you're doing, like crazy out-of-tune stuff. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yes. You can um, get away with so much on those, can't you? <laughs> that's right. Stop. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's funny, look, you know, they say... Tragedy plus time equals comedy. And in the music business, a lot of the that's time, good. it's... it's I like that. Yeah, that's, that's an old adage. And I think in the music business, it could be slightly modified to humiliation plus time <laughs> equals, equals humour. Because there's a certain silliness about it, you know, and it, it invites humiliating circumstance, it seems to. And so how much you can put up with that determines whether you can actually put up with being yeah. in the industry to a degree. How much can you put up with the sheer, you know, the sheer humiliation of, of some of the things. It's not like it's unbearable, 
But when you're sort of all about music and then you introduce a song, go, here's another song, and the song goes, that we don't like, you know, yeah. it's <laughs> you have to find it funny. You just do. Yeah. Otherwise, you just pack it in or you just, you know, you spend too much time crying at your own suffering. It's No one's got time for that. You, know? it's just, you have to find music, it funny. Mate. You have to find it funny. You do. It is. It's, you know, otherwise, why would a film like This Is Spinal Tap exist? The best me, best movie ever about the music business, and it's all made up, but it's all true. It's all true. <laughs> well, um, ladies and gentlemen, I think that uh, you've heard a little bit about uh, Jeff's story, Jeff's book. Uh, here it is. Some memories never die. If only uh, we knew a place where you could buy them. Oh, my mistake. They're right back that's there. That's right. I think uh, everyone should buy a copy. Um, I'm sure Jeff will sign one. Of course you. I will. He'll probably write anything in it for you. Hell, I'll lick them. Uh, I'm desperate. <laughs> It's a little uh, little gem, actually. I've enjoyed. I, I mean, I, I'm a I voracious reader, and I've read tons of books, tons of biographies. This is a cracker, and I heartily recommend it. And put your hands together for Jeff Lang here. Thank you, and thanks, Nick. Nick Charles, not only wonderful musician, but turning out to be an absolutely great writer too. Thank you, Jeff.